morning, church. If you want to take your Bibles out with me and turn to the book of Genesis. We pick it up this morning in chapter 32 as we continue to work our way through Genesis. If you're looking at the, the black Bible that's in the chair that you're sitting in, that should be found on page uh, 27. And I encourage you to keep your Bible open throughout our time this morning as we read through God's Word and as we seek the Lord together, uh, that he might reveal himself to us and that we might respond in faith to him. I remember in high school, uh, you could get your name on the wall if you reached certain strength training goals. So there was the the 500-pound squat club, there was the 300-pound bench press club, and if, you, if you're able to do those things, your name was plastered on the wall of the weight room. And getting your name on the wall was kind of a badge of, of honor in, in high school. But guess what? There were no names on the walls. There was no awards for the weakest person in high school. We don't celebrate weakness. We celebrate strength. We don't celebrate weakness. We try to avoid weakness by spending hours in the gym. We go to our, We spend hours in school to develop intellectual strength. We work long hours at the office to, to garner financial strength. We don't want to be in a position of weakness. We want and labor to be in positions of strength. And strength is appealing to us for the status and for the the self-reliance that strength provides. We prefer going to the self-help section over the how to inconvenience others because I can't handle it myself section. We've had a chance to walk with Jacob. We have the father of the faith, Abraham, and then Isaac, and now we've walked with Jacob for seven chapters in Genesis. And as we've walked with him, we've gotten to know him. And we've seen that Jacob is really defined by his self-reliance. In fact, on the day that he was born, he was grabbing onto the heel of his brother Esau. He wanted to be first from the day that he was born. And that wanting to be first marked the trajectory of the rest of his life. If there was something that he wanted, he grabbed for it. He deceived, he tricked, he schemed, he cheated. He did whatever he needed to do in his own strength and power to get what he wanted. And so far, Jacob was pretty good at it. He took Esau, his older brother's birthright, for a bowl of soup. He tricked and deceived his older father Isaac, who was blind, in order to steal Esau's blessing. And then he single-handedly lifted off this heavy stone that was covering a well in order to impress and win Rachel as his wife. And when Laban for 20 years was trying to cheat him, in the end, Jacob got the better deal. He's pretty good at what he was trying to do. You know, if you put your mower, if you forget to put your mower in the garage during the winter, and then in the spring you try to start it, you take the pull cord, and that pull cord might produce a 
Thrapparada. Thrapparada. Right? And, and, and it's hopeful. We, we kind of hear the engine trying to start, but the engine never really turns over. It's the same with Jacob. As we watch his life unfold in Genesis, we see evidence of, of Jacob trusting God. We've seen a number of spiritual thrupadadas coming from Jacob. But the engine of his heart, his soul, never really turns over into complete trust because he is perpetually trapped and trenched in his self-reliance. After 20 years of serving Laban, we learned last week it's time for him to go home. It's time for him. God calls him. He commands him to go home to the promised land. So in chapter 31, Jacob breaks ties with Laban. It was tricky, but he was successful. He, break tie, he breaks ties, he and his family, with Laban in chapter 31. And at the beginning of chapter 32, it begins on the edge of the promised land. But in order for Jacob to enter the promised land, he has a one more lesson to learn. In order to enter the promised land, Jacob must forsake his self reliance it's the only way in not through his works not through his performance it has to be by grace he must forsake his self-reliance that's the big idea of chapter 32 this morning if you know the big idea it's this to enter the kingdom of god we must be god-reliant not self-reliant that's the big idea, I think, that we're going to see in chapter 32. In order to enter the kingdom of God, we must be God-reliant, not self-reliant. So the text raises a secondary question as we look at Jacob. We've watched him live a certain way all his life, kind of stuck, entrenched in this way he tries. We think he's trusting God, but he always falls back to his own self-reliant, scheming, trickery ways. And so for people who have lived their life in one way, their entire life. Is real change possible? Can people like Jacob really change? It might be a question that you ask when you look at yourself in the mirror in the morning. It might be a question that you're asking of a loved one or a friend. Is real change possible? We're going to find out the answer to that question in chapter 32. The text has two scenes. Those will be the two points of the sermon. Scene number one is this. Beware of lingering self-reliance. Beware of lingering self-reliance. This is uh, verses 1 through 21 of our text. So let's, let's turn our attention now to God's word, starting in verse 1 of Genesis 32. Jacob went on his way, and the angels of God met him. And when Jacob saw them, he said, This is God's camp. So he called the name of that place Mahanaim. And Jacob sent messengers before him to Esau, his brother, in the land of Seir, the country of Edom, instructing them, Thus you shall say to my lord Esau, Thus says your servant Jacob, I have sojourned with Laban and stayed until now. I have oxen, donkeys, flocks, male servants and female servants. I have sent to tell my Lord in order that I may find favor 
in your sight. And the messengers returned to Jacob saying, we came to your brother Esau and he is coming to meet you. And there are 400 men with him. Then Jacob was greatly afraid and distressed. He divided the people who were with him and the flocks and herds and camels into two camps, thinking if Esau comes to one camp and attacks it, then the camp that is left will escape. And Jacob said, O God of my father Abraham and God of my father Isaac, O Lord, who said to me, Return to your country and to your kindred that I may do you good. I am not worthy of the least of all the deeds of steadfast love and all the faithfulness that you have shown to your servant. For with only my staff I crossed this Jordan. And now I have become two camps. Please deliver me from the hand of my brother, from the hand of Esau, for I fear him that he may come and attack me and the mothers with the children. But you said... I will surely do you good and make your offspring as the sand of the sea, which cannot be numbered as for multitude. So he stayed there that night and from what he had and from what he had with him, he took a present for his brother Esau, 200 female goats and 20 male goats, 200 ewes and 20 lambs, rams, 30 milking camels and their calves, 40 cows and 10 bulls, 20 female donkeys and 10 male donkeys. These he handed over to his servants, every drove by itself, and said to his servants, pass on ahead of me, and put a space between drove and drove. He instructed the first, when Esau, my brother, meets you and asks, to whom do you belong, where are you going, and Whose are these ahead of you? Then you shall say, these belong to your servant, Jacob. They are a present sent to my Lord Esau. And moreover, he is behind us. He likewise instructed in the second and the third and all who followed the droves. You shall say the same thing to Esau when you find him. And you shall say, moreover, your servant, Jacob, is behind us. For he thought... I may appease him with a present that goes ahead of me, and afterward I shall see his face. Perhaps he will accept me. So the present passed on ahead of him, and he himself stayed that night in the camp. So in this first scene, the text really opens up with an encouraging note. Because we're told that on the verge of the promised land, in verse 1, the angels of God met him. The angels of God met Jacob. And we might say, well, what's going on with, with this? Why, why right on the, on, on the edge of the promised land does God send these angels to meet Jacob? Well, what's interesting is that phrase, the angels of God, the only other time that phrase occurs in the Old Testament is in Genesis 28, verse 12, when Jacob was leaving the promised land. And right before he left the promised land, God gave him a vision of a ladder that bridged heaven and earth. And on this ladder were the angels of God, ascending and descending. And we learned that that vision of this ladder with the angels ascending and descending from bridging heaven and earth was, was God's way of assuring him that, that God was opening up heaven. God was opening up the resources of heaven. Whatever Jacob needed, God would provide in order to get Jacob, where he intended to get him to go. 
he would give him his presence and his protection. He would open up the resources of heaven in order to assure Jacob that he would do what he promised. So God gave the assurance of his presence and protection 20 years earlier when he was leaving the promised land. Now, 20 years later, God reassures Jacob with that vision of the, or this, this vision of these angels as he's about to enter the promised land. That's why Jacob exclaims in verse 2, this is God's camp. And so he called the name of that place Mahanaim, which means two camps. The Hebrew word for camp there can also mean army. So what are the two camps that Jacob has in mind? You've got Jacob's camp. And what's the other camp? God's camp. It's God's army that he sees right before he goes into the promised land. Surrounded by the angels of God, surrounded by an invincible army that is here to protect and provide for Jacob as a reminder of God's presence and power, Jacob should have been the most fearless and the most confident man on the earth. And we, today, we may not always have this vision of angels like Jacob did, but church, we should be as fearless and as confident as Jacob was because God has promised us, the church, the same thing that he promised to Jacob. In the, in the New Testament, God says to the church, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So we can say with confidence, the Lord is my helper, I will not fear. What can man do to me? Hebrews 13, verse 5. Well, no sooner does Jacob receive this encouragement of the vision of these angels, no sooner does he have this vision that he's then faced with another challenge. He, he, he escaped one challenge with Laban, he turns to go to the promised land, and once again, he's facing another challenge, perhaps a greater challenge. Because you remember, Jacob had deceived his brother Esau, not once, but twice. So the last time that these two brothers saw each other, Esau was so furious, he was set on murdering his brother. He was literally making plans. As soon as Isaac, my father's dead, I'm going to kill my brother. It was not a metaphor. It was not hyperbole. He was literally planning to murder his brother for what he had done to him. Jacob left, spent 20 years in, in Haran with Laban. And we don't know of any account of the two talking. So 20 years have passed. So when Jacob hears that Esau is coming to meet him, and he's coming to meet him with 400 men marching with him, verse 7 says that Jacob was greatly afraid and distressed. Why? Because 400 men marching with Esau to meet Jacob sounds like an army. This is... This is not, this, Jacob's not thinking, oh, he's coming out to have a picnic with me. He's, he's confident that Jacob, Esau's coming out with an army for revenge, to get his blood, to kill Jacob and his wives and his kids. So what does Jacob do? Well, in verses 9 through 12, we have this wonderful prayer. That Jacob cries out to God. And I think this prayer in verses 9 through 12 is, is actually a model prayer for us in the way that we should pray as well. 
in verse 9 and in verse 12, I want us to notice that when he prays, he, he's not just praying what his desires are or what his whims are. His prayers are informed by what God had already said to him. Jacob's prayers are informed and guided by God's word. And he prays the promises of God back to God, not because God had forgotten what he had previously promised. Jacob prays the promises of God to remind himself and to encourage himself and to pray biblically. Friends, we too, as Christians, should pray God's word. Don't just read God's word, meditate on it, and then pray it back to God. Pray the promises of God. God's word should pray, God's word should direct what we pray for and how we pray for those things. So in that sense, Jacob is a wonderful model for us. In fact, if, if you just take the book of, of Psalms, for example. We have a collection of 150 Psalms, and, and they're filled with examples of requests, of confession, of lament, and of thanksgiving and praise. They are meant to be templates for us that we don't just read and then close our Bibles. The Psalms are meant to be read and prayed. They're meant to be read and prayed and sung. I don't know if you noticed this, but in, in our song, uh, um, I Will Wait For You, I Will Wait For You is Psalm 130 put to song. So we're, when we sang that song, we were singing Psalm 130, kind of like what Jacob does in sang and praying and singing God's word. So he, he prays, and God's word directs how he prays. Then in verse 10, he confesses God's grace. He confesses God's, he remembers God's care for him all through these years. He says, I am not worthy of the least of all the deeds of steadfast love and all the faithfulness that you have shown your servant. And we say, finally, Jacob, you get it. And so he, he also then asks God for what he needs. He, he offers supplication in verse 11. This might be the heart of what he, he's praying about. He says, he says, please deliver me from the hand of my brother. From the hand of Esau, for I fear him. He's pouring out his heart to God, that he may come and attack me, the mothers with their children. So Jacob's finally saying, God, I can't do this myself. I'm afraid. Help me. Deliver me. Wonderful prayer. And so prayer and, and, and how he prays is really not only an appropriate response, it is, it is how we should respond to any trial. And Jacob models this for us wonderfully in verses 9 through 12. But, there's always this but with Jacob. As one writer notes, in spite of Jacob's dependence on God through prayer, his fear and his guilt seems to control him at this point. His faith, demonstrated so clearly by his prayer, was tarnished in his attempt to appease Esau. In other words, he trusted God, but Jacob had lingering self-reliance. Don't forget, when Jacob finished serving Laban for 20 years, he did not leave broke. He left a very wealthy Man, and we get a we get a glimpse of how wealthy he had become in the gift that he offers Esau. In verses thirteen through twenty-one, goats, 
rams, camels, cows, and donkeys. Now, for us, we're kind of like, well, that's just like animals, right? But in, 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 an agri- in an agrarian culture, that's cash. That's like saying, let me show you my escalades, my private jets, my, my wealth, all the, the riches my, that I have. 550 animals sent to Esau, each separated in, in, a, in a particular drove, each with a messenger saying to Esau, these are a present from Jacob, and hang on, Jacob's coming. One drove after another drove. After another. We're meant to picture after, when all these droves are done, like he is literally surrounded by bleeding sheep and mooing cows and donkeys and camels, and, and, and it's just a, a, a bombardment of wealth and riches. The gift was over the top. It was large. It was, in fact, some commentators say that it's larger than what a nation, a tribute that a nation would make to an incoming king. So what was Jacob thinking when he offers this gift to Esau? Well, we don't have to guess. In verse 20, he tells us, Moses tells us, he, that's Jacob, thought, I may appease him with the present that goes ahead of me. So Jacob began wonderfully in response to this trial. He prays. Wonderful way to start. But then he turns to schemes, and he tries to buy off Esau's anger. I think part of what we're meant to see is that over these 20 years of separation, his approach to solving his problems hadn't really changed. Because you remember years ago, Jacob bought Esau's birthright with a bowl of soup. What's he doing now? He's buying off Esau's anger. The only difference is the price has gone up from a bowl of soup to now 550 animals. Jacob, uh, Jesus in the New Testament, Matthew 19, once warned us, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle. Just picture that for a moment. You got a camel, you have a sewing needle. It's easier for a camel to fit through the eye of that sewing needle than it is for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Why is it hard for rich people like Jacob to enter the kingdom of God? Because rich people tend to be self-sufficient, self-reliant. They may be religious. They may say prayers. They may go to church. But when push comes to shove and what they care about is on the line or threatened, the temptation for a rich person is to pull out their wallet and get things done their way on their timeline. And you might be thinking, man, Jacob, rich person, all these rich people, right? And we may be shaking our heads at the rich people. But listen, let's just pause for a little bit. Relatively speaking, when we look at the wealth that's in this room of every individual comparatively to the rest of the world, we're all rich. So this Matthew 19 and Jesus' warning is a warning for us. Sometimes the the greatest threat is not poverty, but prosperity. And we need to heed that warning of the dangers of prosperity. So Jacob, rich, fat wallet, does what he's been good at all his life. He schemes. And he puts together this gift that should, in the end, garner some favor. Lower the temperature between him and Esau and garner some favor with Esau. 
But even after he sends these animals, drove after drove after drove, in one sense, Jacob, Jacob's still panicked, and his, panicked is, his panic is understandable. Because he had wronged Esau. He had stolen his birthright, and he had deceived his dad, and he had stolen the blessing. And, and he knows he's guilty. Jacob's not hiding that. He knows he's done wrong. He's known that he's guilty. And so the news of Esau coming with 400 men to meet him made it seem in that moment like Esau was his greatest threat, his greatest enemy. But if Jacob stays on this self-reliant path, getting into the promised land is as likely as a camel is to squeeze through the eye of a needle. Why? Because to enter the kingdom of God, we must be God-reliant, not self-reliant. And it's at this point at the end of scene one that the narrative takes an unexpected turn. So let's turn to the second, second scene here. Scene number two, boast in weakness that leads to God-reliance. Point number two, scene number two, boast in weakness that leads to God-reliance. And we're going to see that in verses 22 through 32. So look down with me at the text, chapter 32, verse 22. The same night he arose and took his two wives, his two female servants, and his eleven children, and crossed the ford at the Jabbok. He took them and sent them across the stream and everything else that he had. And Jacob was left alone. And a man wrestled with him until the breaking of the day. When the man saw that he did not prevail against Jacob, he touched his hip socket, and Jacob's hip was put out of joint as he wrestled with him. Then he said, let me go, for the day has broken. But Jacob said, I will not let you go unless you bless me. And he said to him, what is your name? And he said, Jacob. And then he said, your name shall no longer be called Jacob, but Israel. For you have striven with God and with men and have prevailed. Then Jacob asked him, please tell me your name. But he said, why is it that you ask my name? And there he blessed him. So Jacob called the name of the place Peniel, saying, For I have seen God face to face, and yet my life has been spared. The sun rose upon him as he passed Penuel, limping because of his hip. Therefore, to this day, the people of Israel do not eat the sinew of the thigh that is on the hip socket because he touched the socket of Jacob's hip on the sinew of the thigh. That last verse in verse 32 is meant to be a reminder that, that even in their customs, this was, this was an object lesson for the people of God to be remembered and remembered and recalled every time they butchered an animal. And it's a reminder for us that it's, it's something that we are to remember ourselves today and the lesson it has to teach as the people of God. So after sending all the droves of animals across the river, what's interesting is it's, the sun is set, it's dark, and Jacob is still panicked. The gift is on its way, but he's still panicked. So instead of lying down to sleep, he can't sleep because in his mind, the greatest problem, his greatest enemy, his greatest threat 
was Esau. So not, not able to sit still, he gets up in the middle of the night, can't wait any longer, and he sends his, his family, his servants, and all the rest of his possessions across the Jabbok River in the dark. And we're not told why he is the last to go across the river and why he's left alone. You know, maybe he's just double-checking to make sure everything has got across the river, like, you know, you do one last sweep through in the hotel room before you leave. But whatever the case, the last person, the last animal has crossed the river, and it's just him by himself. Verse 24 says, Jacob was left alone. No noise, no people, no possessions, just Jacob in the dark, left to anticipate a meeting with Esau. When suddenly, out of the darkness comes a hand and grabs a hold of Jacob and attacks him. Now, if, you, if you've read this story before, you know how this ends, but imagine you're reading the story for the first time. And when you, when you get to verse 24 and you see this man coming out of the darkness and grabbing hold of Isaac or Jacob and them wrestling, we're left asking, who is this man? What, what's the identity? What's the, who is it? And at first, it's a mystery. Moses intends to keep us in the dark about his identity, purposely veiling his identity. Verse 24 just tells us a man wrestled with him until the breaking of dawn. It's dark. It's, it's, it's night. Jacob can't see. There's no street lights out there. And so given the context, if you're Jacob and you're, and you're waiting for who? Esau. You're likely thinking the man who snuck across the river and found you all alone is Esau. And it was a fight for his life that lasted not just for a few moments, but until the break of the day. This is no light-hearted, quick little scuffle between brothers. The fight went on until the breaking of the day. And so when you see this fight, this wrestling match going on for, their, for his life for perhaps hours... We're left to assume that this match is between equals. Because if it's not between equals, it's done. But it goes on and on and on until the break of the day. So it seems at first like Moses wants to assume that these wrestlers are of equal strength. That maybe Jacob, if he just keeps fighting, will win. He's won every other battle we've seen him fighting in. But later on in the Old Testament, Hosea chapter 12 verse 4 acts as a commentary on this scene. Because Hosea 12.4 tells us that the man that he was wrestling with was not just a man. The man that he's wrestling with was the angel of God. In other words, Jacob was wrestling with God. Up to now, Jacob thought that Esau was his biggest enemy, his greatest threat. But in this wrestling match, who was his opponent? God was. James Boyce puts it this way. He writes, This possibility had not entered Jacob's mind. He possessed an enemy in Laban. He anticipated an enemy in Esau and was terrified of him. But God? God was no enemy. God was a benign, friendly 
heavenly father figure to whom he could turn to when things got rough, but ignore when he wanted to order his life and formulate his own plans. There was nothing to fear from God. But oh, how wrong Jacob was. Jacob, I think, assumed that he could challenge this man and take him when he didn't know who he was until we get to verse 25. When the man, verse 25, when the man saw that he did not prevail against Jacob, he touched his hip socket and Jacob's hip was put out of joint. I don't know if you've ever had a a bone dislocated. Uh, I remember my finger getting dislocated in football. It was literally, it was horizontal the rest of my hand and it hurt. I was doing nothing else until that was put right. It hurt. So if, if a finger out of joint was that bad, imagine your hip being put out of joint. As soon as his hip was dislocated and Jake was on the ground writhing in pain, he couldn't move. The wrestling match was done. It was over. But notice how the man did it. He doesn't dislocate his hip, Jacob's hip, with some high-flying suplex body slam. What does he do? He's wrestling enough. He takes his finger and he touches the hip socket. Boom! Out of joint. Dislocated. He's done with a touch of the finger. You see, it was in that moment with that powerful touch, I think Jacob realizes, oh, this is not Esau. This is not a match between equals. I'm wrestling God. And in verse 25, when it says that he, God, did not prevail against Jacob, don't misunderstand that. It wasn't that God couldn't prevail against Jacob. God is unlimited in his power, and he evidences, he proves that by his hip dislocating touch. The point of the text is that in this moment, God was limiting his power in order to make a point. What point? Well, up till now, Jacob assumed that Esau was the main problem. He assumed that Esau was the greatest enemy. Esau was the greatest threat. But when he was unable to move in pain on the ground because of his dislocated hip, and he realizes this is God, I think it's then that a light bulb went on on his entire life. His entire life, his scheming, his trickery, his deceiving, his grabbing, his putting himself first. He thought he was wrestling with Laban. He thought he was wrestling with Esau. He thought he was wrestling and trying to deceive Isaac. He thought he was wrestling with man. But his whole life was him wrestling with God. All his life, Jacob had been trying to control God rather than trust God for what he had promised him. Friends, what would you say your biggest problem in your life is right now that's robbing you of your joy robbing you of your contentment what is it if if you could put your finger on it what is it that keeps you up at night anxious fearful 
pacing. I think there is more Jacob in us than we'd like to admit. I, in one sense, I'm thankful for this Jacob narrative because I see myself in Jacob. There's another sense I don't like that because I don't want to be like this. Sometimes we assume that our lack of joy, sometimes we assume that our discontentment is because of something that God is withholding. Or our discontentment is because of something that God has given us, something that we don't want. It could be the skills and abilities that you envy in another that God did not give to you. It could be the parents, the mom or the dad that God gave you. It could be the body that you're stuck with that God gave you. Whatever the case, we assume that the problem is Esau. When our real problem is that we don't trust God. We don't trust his promises. We don't trust his will for our life. We don't believe that what he says in his word is right or good or for our good. And so like Jacob, we wrestle with God. Now, Jacob was so stubborn and so hard-hearted that it took God breaking his hip to open his eyes. Has your life ever been put out of joint by God? Have you ever had these grand plans only to have your plans be dislocated? It doesn't feel good, does it? Now listen, not every trial happens because of our sin. There's not always a direct link between a trial that we're facing and our sin. But the pain of failure, the pain of a broken relationship, the pain of disappointment or job loss or sickness can be heartbreaking. It can feel like our whole life is out of joint. And as I've read the text this week, I've actually struggled with the text because I've, I've, as, I've, as I've watched Jacob, I see myself in Jacob, and I've found myself praying. I've, I found myself asking God, okay, what do I need to do so that you don't break my hip? Just tell me what to do so I don't have to do this. I don't want this. Just tell me what to do. And as I've reflected on the text, what struck me is how Jacob responds when he's laying on the ground, writhing in pain, defeated with a dislocated hip, How does Jacob respond? It's the moment of decision. What does he do? He grabs a hold of God and he clings to him. Verse 26, Jacob said, I will not let you go unless you bless me. Where else can I go? You have the words of eternal life. And then in verse 29, Jacob asks God, please tell me your name. And what's important to realize here is that when Jacob asks God his name, he's not asking God, what should I put on your name tag? When Jacob asks God his name, in the Old Testament, the name of God refers to who God is. 
Think of Exodus 34 when, 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 when God shows himself to Moses. He declares his name to Moses in Exodus 34. The name of God is who God is, is his character. So we see a switch happening in Jacob. All his life, all his life, Jacob has been trying to use God to get something that he really wanted. The blessing, the birthright, the wife, the wealth. And he was using God, trying to use God to get what he really wanted. But now, God himself has become the thing, the one who Jacob really wants. No longer was God just an ends to a mean, the means to an end. God was the end. God was the goal of Jacob's hopes and desires. God was the reward. God was the blessing that he was seeking after. That's why he. That's why Jacob calls the place Peniel, which means the face of God. Because in the Old Testament, the face of God is shorthand for the presence of God. He wanted more than anything. God. Now, I think our instinct to avoid pain is normal and healthy. You might, you might like me, read this text and say, God, what do we got to do so we don't have our hips broken? Right? Just tell us that. That's normal. It's healthy. We, we shouldn't want pain and trials in our life. We're not masochists in that way. But, friends, don't we accept pain all throughout our life if it means that it leads to something better? We do this all the time. We accept the pain of a tight budget in order to save up for that wonderful vacation that we're looking forward to. We accept the pain of going to the gym and eating some healthy food to stay healthy. We submit to, we accept the pain of surgery to stay alive. We don't flinch at that. We accept that. And so as I've thought about this text and what my heart has been, how my heart has responded to the idea of, of praying as I have, instead of praying, God, what do I need to do to not get my hip broken by you? I am now striving to pray, God, take whatever you want. Do with my life whatever you want, if it means knowing you, if it means seeing you if it means experiencing your nearness. I trust you. Now, if you're new to Christianity and you're not a Christian, you are a Christian, praying like that may sound scary. It may, it may, sound, it may sound strange. But if you've tasted and seen God's goodness, praying that way makes absolute sense. And I say I'm striving to pray this way because I still am scared to pray that prayer. But I believe with all my heart. And I want that to be true of me and I want that to be true of you, church. Because on the other side of praying that prayer and having God answer that is the most profound freedom and joy and contentment that we can know. Because it's found in God and God alone. I'll never forget reading Philippians 3, verse 8, like it was the first time I'd read it. I'd read it before. But I was sitting there in college, and, 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 and it's like the light bulb went off when I read Philippians 3.8. And Paul writes this, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth, 
of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. I remember reading that and been thinking, okay, Paul, really? Do I have to lose everything to gain Christ? Is that what you're actually saying? And it's like the text just keeps saying, yep. To gain everything, I gotta lose everything. To really live, you gotta die. To win, you gotta lose. You gotta put your life in his hands. Paul, before he was a Christian, had a lot of gain in the eyes of the world, a lot of things to be proud of. But he had seen, he had tasted and seen the goodness of God. He had seen the glory of God. And so he then counted it all, everything that he had to boast about in this life, he counted it all as loss. He counted it as rubbish, as garbage, in order to gain Christ. And listen, when he made that transaction, far from being disappointed, Paul was thrilled. Because in gaining Christ, he knew he got the better deal. He sold all he had for the treasure that was in the field, and he did it with rejoicing. Because the treasure was a treasure of infinite worth. And we are called to do the same. Listen, God did not come to Jacob that night to bludgeon him. With a club. He came that night to bless him. But I think the, the, the sight in this text of seeing Jacob on the ground, writhing in pain, hip dislocated, we may still struggle with the assumption that God is harsh or heavy handed. Because we can't tame God, and He can and will win every time we try to fight Him. He will dislocate your hip if He needs to. And so we may assume that maybe God's harsh or heavy-handed. But So how can we know that God, this God who dislocates hips is good? How can we open our lives up to him? Because you will not open your life up to this God if you don't think he's good. Well, when, Jacob, when God asks Jacob, so Jacob asked God, what's your name? But then before that, God asked Jacob in verse 27, what is your name? When God asked Jacob that question, it's not that God forgot his name. In asking the question, God is giving Jacob a chance to finally come clean. I think that moment when God asks Jacob, what's your name? I think that moment was embarrassing and painful for Jacob. Because Jacob in the Hebrew means cheat. Liar, heel grabber. And so if Jacob's going to be honest, he has to tell God, that's who I am. And by God's grace, his answer is a confession. Who am I? I'm Jacob. I'm Jacob. All my life, I've been a liar. All my life, I've been a schemer, a trickster. All my life, I've put myself first at the expense of others it was his confession but friends when we come to god and are honest and we confess and we repent when jacob came to an end in himself when he came and turned to god in repentance and he comes clean god doesn't whack him god changes jacob 
changes, Jacob. Your name shall no longer be called Jacob. No longer shall you be the deceiver, the trickster, the liar, the heel grabber. That's not who you are anymore. I'm God and I'm changing you. I'm making you a new creation. I'm giving you a new identity. From now on, you shall be called Yisrael. Israel, which means he strives with God. In the past, he had strived against God. He had wrestled against God. I don't like what he's doing. I will wrestle against God. But now he's striving to know God and be satisfied in him. And we're called to do the same, friends. To open our lives to God, we must first see the infinite value of Christ. We must believe that God is good. How do we get there? How do we come to God and say, God, take away from me whatever you want, do with my life whatever you want, as long as it means knowing you? How do we get there? We can't open our own eyes. We must pray like Jacob prays. We must strive like Jacob strived. Read God's word, gather with his people, pray, pray, pray like Jacob prays. I will not let you go unless you bless me. And friends, that's more than us just saying, okay, yeah, I'm going to do that this week. It means leaving here and saying, at some point today or tomorrow, making a plan. When are you going to pray? When are you going to read God's word? Where are you going to do it? Who are you going to do it with? Make a plan. Because if you don't make a plan, you're planning to not do it. So make a plan to pray like Jacob prays. Friends, when Jacob thought that Esau was his greatest problem, he tried to appease, that word means to make atonement to Esau. But after meeting God, he realized that he didn't, his greatest problem was not making atonement with Esau. His greatest problem was needing atonement from God. In verse 30, Jacob was amazed. He had come face to face with the holy God, and he walked away with his heart still beating. He, was, he walked away spared and delivered. How? He's right, he's right to think that he should have died when he, when he came face to face with a holy God. How, did he, how was he spared? Well, friends, remember that when God wrestled with Jacob and didn't win immediately, it was not because God lacked strength. It was because God voluntarily limited his power. And at the end of the match, it kind of looked like Jacob lost. When you're on the ground, dislocated hip, it looks like Jacob lost. But at the end of verse 28, it says, you have striven with God and prevailed. You've won. And that's the point. Jacob won by losing. He had thought he could make it into the promised land in his own strength, his own resources, his own good works. I can do this. You don't want to make it that way. In order to win, you've got to lose. What's interesting is that you fast forward generations later in the line of Jacob, Jesus came, a descendant of Jacob, Jesus came 2,000 years ago as God in the flesh. And what's interesting is that in the same way that God voluntarily limited his power with Jacob, in Christ, our creator was voluntarily limiting his strength. Jesus is the son of God. He's the one who spoke creation into existence. And in his humanity, he came in weakness. 
so that he could die for sinners. And when we look at Jesus hanging on the cross, in that moment, it looks like he lost. But Jesus won by losing. And Jesus' resurrection on the third day confirmed his victory. Friends, on the cross, the sinless Son of God bore the sins of those who would trust in him because on the cross, Jesus drank the full cup of God's righteous wrath for our sin so that we could be forgiven if we trust in him. Do you see God's heart for you in this text? Do you see God's heart not to bludgeon you, but to bless you? Jacob's limp for the rest of his life would be a limp that would be a visible reminder of God's grace, God's love for Jacob. He would limp as a badge of honor. May God open our eyes to taste and see the goodness of God in that way. So friends, if God came to you this afternoon and he asked you the same question he asked Jacob, who are you? What's your name? Would you answer, well, I'm a good person. That's who I am. Or would you be honest? Like Jacob is honest. No matter how embarrassing or painful that confession would be. It takes faith to believe that winning happens by losing. It takes faith to believe that God's power is made perfect in our weakness. Because the world does not celebrate weakness. But friends, it is a lesson that we as followers of Jesus, and if you're not yet a follower of Christ, it's a lesson that you also must learn today because we enter the kingdom of God not by being self-reliant, but by being God-reliant. So whether you're a non-Christian who needs to make that decision for the first time today, or whether you've walked with God all your life, the choice is ours today. Will you rely on yourself Or will you rely on God? I pray that we as a church would rely upon God who is gracious and is faithful and is worthy of our trust. Let's pray together.